Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to remind you that my short story is available for free at johntilton.com. If you sign up for my newsletter, I'll send you both the ebook and audiobook of Doomed Dune. In this middle grade adventure, a girl named Melina travels to a forbidden landmark guarded by tyrannical robots, but her life turns upside down when she discovers the true reason it's off limits. Discover Doom Doom Secret by heading over to johntilton.com. That's J-O-N-T-I-L-T-O-N.com. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Cause of Craft. I'm your host, John Tilton. Why do we create? Where do our ideas come from? What does our craft say about us? These are the ideas we explore here on the show. Each episode, I interview a different guest, from writers and painters to musicians and filmmakers. Together, we investigate the creative process and the reasons behind why we create. No matter how far we've come, there's always new avenues to learn and grow. This week's guest is historical fiction author Liz Tolsma. She shares how her passion and love for learning pushes her to constantly improve her craft. We also discuss how to choose what to write next, which time periods count as historical fiction, and her personal connection with her latest book, A Picture of Hope. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey Liz, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hi John, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. What was it about writing that attracted you to the art form in the first place? Well, my parents always said that I had a flair for the dramatic from the time I was very little. I loved making up stories in my head. I always had something going on in my brain, a a story. I would sit and watch people and make up stories about where they were going or what they were doing. So I guess I've always been a storyteller and a story creator, but I can't say that there was a moment that I started creating stories because I always have since I was very young. When you say you were making stories about different people that you saw, did you find yourself thinking about a certain thing or like seeing something about them and making up a story about that or just making up completely from scratch? It was maybe something that caught my eye about them. Maybe it was a parent with a child who was running off all the time, or maybe it was somebody driving a rusty old truck or a million different things, but something unique about them might catch my eye. And I would say, I wonder what they're going or what they're doing or something like that. And it would just spark these stories that I would make up about people all the time. Is there a bridge there to the historical fiction aspect where you're thinking about these past events and and wondering about things? Yes, I think there is, because my husband does not like it when I'm on the internet looking up things, especially World War II things, but any kind of news article will catch my eye, and almost immediately, ideas will start pouring in. I don't know how it happens. I God just kind of puts it there, I guess. It's part of the blessing and the curse of being an author, but... These ideas are always floating around in my head, and it doesn't take me very long, usually, to come up with a storyline. Obviously, I have to refine it as I write, but I can have the basic story there and be ready to run with it. So the book that I'm writing now is a World War II set in Greece, and it was just a little blurb that I read. I don't even know where I read it. But as soon as I read it, I thought, I can write a book around that. And I almost immediately had a story idea, the kernel of it at least, ready to go. It's actually reminding me of, um, have you seen the movie Braveheart? 
I did a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> the writer of that, uh, he talks about he had heard, I think, just the person's name, who the main character of the film, and some like one sentence of an idea about this particular individual. And that launched this whole entire storyline that he had. And he almost saw it as, oh, there's not anything written about this guy. Like, that's the blessing because, you know, I can just make up the rest. <laughs> right. Do you like when you find gaps in in the history that you can fill in yourself? Or do you like to lean into what's already there? That's a really good question because I've written books where I've had a lot of information. In fact, so much that I could pretty much keep the book open that I was using as a resource and then just sort of right along my novel, taking those events and fictionalizing them because it was so detailed. There was so much information and others I've had really just a paragraph and not much more about whatever incident or person that I was writing about. And they're both good in a way, because like you said, if there's a lot of information, it's very easy to write, but then you feel very tied down to the historical period and getting the facts correct because people can easily go look that up and they will let you know if you get it wrong. Whereas if you have one that doesn't have a lot of information, then it frees you, but sometimes you want a little bit of structure there that more details about whatever incident or a person that you're writing about could provide for you. The way you're talking about it kind of reminds me of the ongoing discussion people have about planners versus pantsers and that sort of difference. And I've always found that I like to kind of have a mix of both in myself. And I found that other writers like to have that mix as well. And it sounds like from your answer that having the mix, because there's value in both ends of it, it helps to have maybe something that's a little bit detailed, but not too much. So you can have that creative freedom because limitations actually give you something as well. So having those limitations to guide you along with the freedom to to take different turns. Exactly. Couldn't have said it better. So you talk about having this flood of ideas that come in when you're reading history books or looking up old newspapers, things like this. How do you take all that flood of ideas and decide what project to work on next? Well, sometimes it is dependent on what publisher I'm working with at the time. If I'm doing a World War II series for a certain publisher, then I need to sort of stick to what it is that the publisher wants me to do. So for instance, the World War II book that just released October 1st, that's part of the Heroines of World War II series from Barber Publishing. So they said, go ahead and write World War II, and it's a series of 12 standalone books by different authors. So I had that structure where it had to be a very strong female heroine. She had to be the one solving the problem. And so that I had to write in that constraint. Then I came up with this idea for the one that I'm writing now, where it is going to be time slip, which is very popular. And it's going to be somebody who discovers something from their DNA test results that was very surprising, and it somehow relates back to World War II. And my publisher really liked that because I sort of hit on a lot of things that were popular, time slip, DNA, 
test results and World War II. So we were able to put that all together. But now I have to work in those constraints. So it kind of just depends on what I can sell at the time and what the publisher is looking for, what the market dictates, whether World War II is hot or not. I wrote six World War II pretty quickly in succession, and then the market cooled off for World War II for a while. So I wrote some romantic suspense because that was really big. And now World War II is picking up again. And so I'm writing world more, more World War II now. Yeah. And again, it's kind of the, the value of both ends of the spectrum, right? Because you're having all these ideas. So the problem is, well, which one do I do? And then you have, well, there's the constraints of like everything you're saying, the market, what the publisher wants, all these things. This guides you in the next direction of where you should go. But then on the flip side, it's like, well, you could also start with what someone's asking you to write. Oh, do you have any books that are related to this category? And then because you have so many ideas, you can say, oh, let, let me look in my filing cabinet of ideas. Yes, I actually have something very oddly specific because I have a million ideas. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of, I guess, the cool thing about having a lot of ideas is being able to be flexible and adapt to the situation. Having a lot of ideas and being widely read and having a wide background, I think that helps too. Uh, a lot of trivia, useless, seemingly trivia up there that comes into play sometimes and really helps out. When you select the idea that you're going to produce into a full novel, I'm assuming there's still work to be done in terms of the research. Where's the first place that you turn to get a greater understanding about the time period and the situation that you're writing about? That depends a lot on the book. Sometimes I have started with the actual historical event that I'm using or the actual historical person that I'm basing it on and finding out more about that and doing a lot of research on that. Sometimes I do it through interviews of people, although with my World War II books, it's getting harder and harder to do that now because that generation is dying out and there are fewer people for me who can be resources. I like to read diaries and things of people who were involved in the war because that helps me to get in a, a sense of what they were thinking and feeling as these events were happening to them. Sometimes it is a setting. The one that I'm working on right now is set in Greece, and I was very blessed to have the opportunity to go to Greece in August and spend two weeks there, really immerse myself in the culture and learn a lot about the people. So this one, I have found myself starting more with the setting and making the setting almost another character in the book because that culture is so rich and I was just there. So it's all in me and I loved it and I'm excited to share about that. A lot of that then is all my notes, getting together my notes that I took while I was there about modern day Greece and about Greece during World War II as well, the World War II sites that I saw while I was there. So this one is a very different one. I've never started with a setting as much as I have with this one. Very often it's the characters that I try to draw first and make them come to life, to give them backgrounds, to give them problems that they need to solve. So I usually start with characters and start sketching them out and filling them out, rounding them out a little bit. But 
This one's different. It's starting with settings. So we'll see what happens with it. So this is kind of changing the topic a little bit, but I'm curious about for historical fiction, what's like the cutoff point for the time period? Is it like whatever was more than 30 years ago? Or is it as soon as there's a significant event? Like, for example, like if someone wrote a book that took place during September 11th or something like this, is that considered historical fiction at this point? Or does more time need to pass? It's funny that you'd ask that question because I was just having a conversation with some author friends of mine about this very subject. Like the lines have shifted. When I started in this industry about 20 years ago, it was World War II. The end of World War II, beyond that, was not considered historical. Now that line is really shifting because, of course, 20 years has gone past. And I am seeing a lot more stories written during the 50s, 60s, even the 70s. I read a really, really good one recently that had three storylines. So one was in the 70s, one was in the later 80s, and one was in the present day. So it was very interesting. I asked the author, do you feel the 80s are historical? And (laughs) so we had this whole debate to me. I I graduated from high school. I got went to college. I got married all in the 80s. So for me, that's not, I don't want to consider that historical. That ages me far too much. But for some younger people, that definitely is historical. So it's moving upward and there's just this whole debate on what is historical and what is not right now. I don't think there's a definite cutoff date and there's not saying like 30 years past is historical. It's just a blurred line right now, especially with all the time slip that's out there. It's blurring that line, I think, of what's historical and what's not. Especially because World War II was such a big event that that helps ground a certain time period. But then, like you're saying, as soon as a certain amount of time goes by and that, well, now there's enough history after that, but then where do you stop? And it sounds like it sounds like maybe one point to stop is when the um, writers graduated high school, because if you do anything (laughs) earlier, that's going to be offensive to them that it's considered historical. Right, exactly. (laughs) So no, uh, no September 11th books until the writers graduated (laughs) high school in uh, 2000. I guess that's actually happening now. So so maybe that'll happen sooner than we think. Maybe so, you know, to my My son remembers it a little bit. My daughter was so little that she doesn't remember it at all. And so to her, it's history. And to me, it's as if it happened yesterday. So I have read books set on and around September 11th. And to me, they are very immediate. They don't feel historical at all. But to a 20-year-old reading them, it probably does feel historical. And I would imagine when you're interviewing people about World War II, to them, that feels like yesterday as well. I'm sure it does. The people that I have talked to, you can just see as I'm interviewing them, you can watch in their eyes as they're going back in history and reliving these events. And yeah, it's as if it happened yesterday. And they really get into their stories and can get very emotional about it because those emotions are still raw and talking about it brings it right back to the surface, like we said, as if it happened yesterday for them. 
we're talking about all these different decades of events, World War II, things that happened before and after. When you're writing in a time period, do you change your writing style to fit the historical time at all? Or are you mostly sticking to the style that you prefer in the events or what's historical? Definitely different moods for different time periods and different places. You can use the setting and things like that to create a mood. I did just finish my first time slip. Part of it is set in 1836 and part of it is contemporary times. It was the earliest that I've ever written. I've never written anything as early as 1836. So for me, that was really different. And I did try to change up the language that I used a little bit. I did a little bit of research on what words were popular, what phrases were popular, read some things that were written around that time to get an idea of how the people spoke. And obviously, I'm not going to take it word for word or anything like that, but to get a flavor to differentiate the historical time period from the contemporary time period is really important to me. And I'm working on edits now for this book based on The Last Princess with this Russian princess who has fled to France. So my editor is suggesting some changes to make it feel a little bit more like the 1920s and to make it feel a little more French than I had had it. So that's one thing I'm working on in my edits. It's tough to try to get that, but that's one part of being a writer is working with the words, with the language to create the scene, the setting, the mood, everything that you want to do that's going to draw them into whatever time period you're writing, whether it's 1836 or 1920s or World War II or contemporary or whatever. Does that make you want to write another book around that same time period now that you're learning the ins and outs of how the people speak, what the setting is like, or do you like to do something completely different? It was fun to write 1836 because it was so very different for me. I had written late 1800s, but never that early. It was interesting and I learned a lot. My heart will always be with World War II. So I'll never say I'll never write another book in that time period. But as long as they keep me writing World War II right now, that's the time period that I'm happy with. And I have some ideas in my head for the Korean War. And I'd like to put a proposal together and pitch that and see kind of where publishers are at and if they're open to publishing anything set during the Korean War. Your most recent release, A Picture of Hope, that is World War II, right? Yes, that is set in France during the war. And it's about an American female photojournalist who sneaks into France after D-Day. And that is based on a true event. I have had people saying that can't happen, that couldn't have happened. She was a little reckless sneaking into France like that. I've read some reviews that have dinged me because they say that that was reckless of her, but it's based on an actual event. And she managed to scoop a lot of male reporters by doing so. So my character sneaks into France, finds herself behind enemy lines, and meets up with a French maquisard, which was a resistance fighter. And together they stumble on this horrific scene, this terrible tragedy, and 
a child with Down syndrome who has survived this. But the Nazis didn't want anybody who was an undesirable. So anybody who was different or deficient in their eyes, they wanted to get rid of. And that included people with intellectual disabilities. And so they need to rescue this girl and try to get her across the Swiss border before the Nazis catch up to them. So that's the basis of A Picture of Hope. This story does have a personal connection with you and your family as well. Did you want to talk about that a little bit? It is almost 14 years ago now that we adopted a little girl with microcephaly. So she has an intellectual disability. She falls in the moderate to severely disabled range. And for me then, writing about these children that the Germans, the Nazis, Hitler wanted to eradicate because they didn't feel that they were worthy of living life. That was heart-wrenching for me. It just tore at me to think about my daughter being a target of them had she been born in a different time and a different place. So I poured a lot of my heart and soul into this. And one thing I want readers to get out of the book is to see that every life is precious and every life has worth and has value. She makes us laugh so much. Her joy is so contagious. We took her last night to see one of her favorite musicals at a theater and she clapped and she sang with the cast and she was having the best time grinning from ear to ear, laughing out loud. I had more fun watching her than watching the show almost. She's so joyful and her life has a lot of meaning. There's a lot that she can offer to the world and I wanted people to see that. So you can probably tell from the way I'm talking that I'm very passionate about this and nowadays you parents find out from ultrasounds that their unborn children have some type of problem, whether it's Down syndrome or microcephaly or a host of other problems that in the U.S. up to two-thirds of those pregnancies are terminated, and in parts of Europe up to 90% of those pregnancies are terminated. And that just rips my heart out because they're missing out on such great joy they don't even know. Yeah, that's beautiful. I I don't know. I don't know where to go with that. I feel like I should be dwelling on it longer. Well, I guess I'll I'll ask the first question that I was thinking of um, related to that. So we talked earlier about picking through certain topics and was your connection with your daughter what led you to write the book in the first place? Or did you find the details and then that came into the book as you wrote it? It did not start out as part of the book at all. In fact, it was supposed to be that they were supposed to be trying to get Jewish children over the border to Switzerland, which is very true. That's exactly what happened. But then I came upon this scene that I wrote where there was this great tragedy. I don't want to give too much away, but a picture of hope, the picture that's at the center of this book 
was taken there and they had a child and it's going to sound really bizarre to those who aren't authors, but in my mind's eye, as I was writing that scene and looking, I'm using air quotes here, looking at that child in the picture, I looked into that little girl's face and I saw a child with Down syndrome completely took me by surprise, but I was very excited and I thought, yes, this is the angle that I need to take with this book. This is the direction it needs to go. And that's how it took off from there. So changing topics again, a little bit more about like the actual craft of writing here. One thing we talked about earlier on was the different styles that you might apply to, you know, character voice and depending on the decade or, or century and in some cases here. As you've written a lot of books over the years, how has your personal style, the techniques you use, your voice changed since when you first started writing or even from a couple of years ago? It's always changing and evolving, I hope. I hope it's always getting better. I try to learn something new with each book that I write. So that keeps me growing as a writer and as an author. And I just find that I've come, I think my characters are deeper and better. I've learned to write what is called deep POV. So that's just really means just really getting inside the skin, crawling inside the skin of each of the characters and showing the action and what's going on through their eyes and showing the emotions that they're having inside. And that's been a big leap in my writing since my very first book. I think it's deeper and richer, I hope. And I think that helps to play up the emotion and draw the reader in to the story more. When did you start to see deep point of view as something that you want to implement into your writing? Oh, it's been a number of years now, probably five or six years since I started trying to delve into what it was. I had heard a lot about it. They said really only for suspenseful books should you use it like thrillers or something like that. But I found I've been able to apply it to straight romance novellas. I've been able to apply it to World War II and to my romantic suspense with a degree of success, I believe. So it's something that I'm always learning and refining and working on and trying to get better and better at and to use it more and more to my advantage. So it's a process of learning how to do this and how to do it well and how to best draw the reader into the story. So I always say if anybody tells you that you've arrived as an author. You know everything that there is to know about writing and there's nothing more that you can learn. They're lying to you. And any author who would claim that is, well, I don't want to, you know, diss anybody, <laughs> I've, but I've never heard anybody say that because they know there's always more room for growth and learning. They know that there's no perfect author out there. Everybody gets better and better with each book that they write. So, 
it's always a process of learning and growth. And of course, the industry and what the industry demands is always changing as well. Omniscient point of view, say when Edgar Allan Poe wrote, that's what he wrote in was omniscient point of view. Whereas nowadays, I don't think you could sell a book written in omniscient point of view because it's just the market has changed and things are always evolving. And so it's moved away from that to different type of writing altogether. That's one reason why I wrote the time slip that I just turned in. It's because I wanted a new challenge and to learn something new. And it's very hot in the market right now. I personally really enjoy reading them myself. And so I wanted to try my hand at writing them. It was a real challenge. And sometimes I was tearing my hair out, wondering how in the world I was going to make this work. And I learned a lot. And now I'm going to write another time slip. So I hope to take what I've learned from that and apply it to this book and to learn even more and get even better at writing this style. So we'll see how that goes. But that's the challenge that I've presented myself for the next few books. And for people who aren't familiar with time slip, what is that? What's the definition? I don't know that there's a definition. It's also called dual time. So usually in there, the contemporary characters are trying to solve some mystery in the past. So something has happened in the past. There's often an object or something that ties the two timelines together. But that's basically it. The contemporary characters are trying to solve something from the past or come to terms with something from the past that has shaped who they are today. What is it about taking on a new challenge that is satisfying or important to you? I've always just liked learning something new and learning how to do it well to master something. And I don't want to be static. I always want to be growing and learning and getting better at whatever it is. So if I can put a challenge in front of myself and I can conquer it, I just get a great deal of satisfaction out of that. I guess it's just who I am and how I'm wired. I like I like to see what I can do and how far I can stretch myself. And it's been a lot of fun to stretch myself. I see how far I've come from that very first book that I wrote that will never see the light of day to having over 20 novels published. That was huge for me. And I just keep wanting to better myself. And so I'm always up for a good challenge. The way you're talking about it, that's something that you might apply outside of just writing too. Do you find yourself challenging yourself and in other things in your life because of that same reason? Sure. I'm always willing to learn something new, to try out something new. My husband and I are redoing our bathroom. And so there's a lot of new things that we're learning as we're going along doing this. And that's been a lot of fun. Like I said, I was always the shy, introverted one, scared of her own shadow. So for me to get on an airplane a couple of months ago and fly by myself to a foreign country 
that was huge for me. That was another challenge that I had to overcome. And I was so proud of myself and I learned that I absolutely loved it and I can't wait to do it again. So I think it's just part of living and living a rich and full life is to challenge yourself to find something new and see if you can do it. It might not be easy. It might be hard and it might be a lot of work and it might take you a long time in order to conquer it and to master it. But if you stick with it and really apply yourself, if it's something that you're passionate about, then you might just surprise yourself and the sense of satisfaction, It there's nothing better than that. How do you look at all those possible challenges and, and decide which ones are worthy endeavors? I think it comes back to the passion and what am I passionate about? So I am passionate about history and about other cultures. I love learning about people from other cultures. And so that's what drove me to start traveling by myself and going to foreign countries and learning and absorbing their cultures. That's been what's driven me is my passion for that kind of stuff. My passion for a new bathroom, I guess. <laughs> um you know, I do, I'm an HGTV addict, you know, I, I guess I've gotten caught up in that. And when it came time to redo the bathroom, I sort of threw myself headlong into it just because I had watched so much of it and wanted to try it out on my own. So I think a lot of that comes from where your passion is and my writing as well. These challenges that I set forth for myself are because I'm passionate about writing. It's what I love more than anything else in the world is to create a story. And if I can challenge myself to be a better storyteller, that just fuels my passion even more. And it just keeps me going and moving forward. So you have a podcast yourself. Did you want to tell people about where they can find that and what you cover on your show? So yes, I do have a podcast. It's called Christian Historical Fiction Talk. And on there, we talk about the Christian historical fiction industry. So I do a lot of author interviews in there. I've had some of the top authors in the industry be guests on the show. They've always been very gracious and wonderful to talk to. We also do topics. So we've done topics like time slip. What is it that draws it, you to it? Um, we have another one coming up on is romance dead? So that one's very interesting. I'm getting a lot of feedback on that. And then I do some listener-fueled ideas as well. So with this one is, is Romance Dead? I'm asking for feedback from my listeners and going to be sharing on that episode what they think about that question. So it's a lot of fun. And you can just go to my website, which is liztolsma.com. And you'll see the most recent episode usually on the right side of my website or at the top, there's a tab that says podcast and it'll take you right to Christian historical fiction talk and you can find out more information there. Yeah. And your website is a great place to also see just a full list of all your books, more about you. Um, you also do editing and speaking, and you have a blog there as well. So we'll have links in the show notes to those things. And then you're also on a couple of different social media sites, right? Yes. You can find me on Facebook, 
Instagram, Twitter. Those are my main places. I have a small YouTube channel that I'm trying to grow. That's been kind of slow, but mainly Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter is where I hang out. Well, great. Thanks again so much, Liz. It was it was a joy to talk with you and uh, learn about your writing. Thanks so for, much for having me, John. I really have enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cause of Craft. You can find links to Liz's podcast, website, and social media in the show notes or on her website, liztolzma.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing with a friend and leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Those two simple things really help the podcast grow. And if you have feedback, suggestions, or guest recommendations, send an email to john at causeofcraft.com. That's J-O-N at causeofcraft.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.